0: Welcome to the HS health tech podcast, which covers the latest in health and technology through interviews with disruptive health startups and leaders. So you are listening to one of our first 20 episodes so first of all thank you so much for listening. As you can imagine with the podcast they get more and more popular which I certainly did after episode 20 so we started giving proper introductions, long introductions and we upgraded our equipment and everything like that so that's why you're hearing from me now because we're putting this at the start of every one of those first 20 episodes. So I am your host, my name's James Somaru, I'm an anaesthetics and intensive care doctor by back So I practiced for five years. I did loads of different jobs in policy and leadership within the UK NHS. I've run two different health tech accelerators to help startups grow, access different markets in the UK and abroad. And now I'm a co-founder of HS and we build, scale and invest in the best health tech startups. So if you want to get in touch with us, then head on over to the description of this podcast. In there, you will find all of the links to our social media, website, emails, etc. So click on those, follow us, let us know what you think of the podcast and feel free to suggest any guests. Hope you enjoy this week's episode. Hope you enjoy the rest of the podcast. Connect with us. Let us know what you think.
1: Welcome to today's episode of the HS Podcast. Uh, joining James, Nathan, and I today is Dr. Chris Whittle, who is the CEO and founder of Q Doctor. Uh, Chris, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure.
2: Yeah. Thanks for having me. Um, so my my background, just for context, is um, I'm an HS doctor by training, um, and the the reason Q Doctor came around um, and and happened was it started several years ago for me it was about three years ago or so um when i was working in as an anaesthetist in several different hospitals where i was meeting gps coming in from the community with um issues around interoperability with their it systems and um that sort of made me look out to to see what was there for online consulting what could i find um in terms of it infrastructure and my suspicion was there might be um and the danger that the nhs might fall behind and and coming through from the nhs i wanted to do something about that um so i i started to gather um gps together and get opinions and and find out actually lots of the stuff out there was very private healthcare orientated um and started on a journey towards um
1: what is q doctor today i heard you giving a presentation you're talking about your i think it was your brother who was very entrepreneurial and, mm. and you sort of looked at him and, and looked at what you could do in the healthcare space.
2: Yeah, it's a bit unusual as well, isn't it? So um, my brother, yeah, it, he, um, me going off to medical school, he went the opposite route, didn't go to university, um, wanted to do something very entrepreneurial, started uh, by designing a kitchenware product. So he designed a, a spatula, it's called the Perfect Egg Spatula, um, that's got a hole in the middle and you can cook at uh, the top of a frying egg without cooking the yolk. Sort of quite a novelty item, and he... Um, He started to get that into small retailers in the UK and then um, met some international companies that um, didn't want to sell his product, but actually just said, look, your entrepreneurial spirit sort of reminds us of our founding team and and ourselves where he was talking to the founders. Um, And so through that route, he ended up um, essentially running and creating a logistics company um, that that sorts out their internationalization for them. and has done really well out of that and it's just been i realized the lesson to me was you you don't have to be on the money with your exact first kind of iteration you can it, a lot of it is about what's the approach and what's the, the the problem that needs solving um and and how can you kind of um, be persistent about it and and figure out how that is best solved and, and that leads to success so i saw i saw my brother doing that while i was Um, in the NHS seeing these problems and that was quite an inspirational
1: sort of um, journey for me to watch yeah I'm sure I mean it sounds absolutely incredible and I don't think we've actually talked about it that much on the podcast but certainly we have a significant um, number of people in our ambassador program or who listen to the podcast or who who we've met in our travels who aren't quite there yet I guess with starting a any sort of company and who are looking at making that leap into working for themselves and and working to solve a big problem and actually just getting out there and doing it is often the big thing that, that that we tell everybody to do just whatever it is, have a go at it. And Mm. as you said, your first idea may well be absolutely terrible, but it's, it's all a learning process and it's about putting yourself out there and testing your idea.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I think that um, there's a, there's an element of it about making sure that you're, you're aligning your, I guess fundamentally the reason you're trying to do it, and uh, that's been a big part of what we've done at Q Doctor, because it's been about from the very beginning. My my reasoning has been, how can we make sure the NHS doesn't fall behind, and how can we sort of in- improve the uptake of of technology within the NHS, and and that kind of just having that single simple thing um, underlying all the conversations I've had since, and all the relationships. And essentially, the NHS is a web of relationships that need to be built up to, to gain any traction that's been just a, a key principle just a, a getting it straight in your head what what it is the, the motivation behind what you do not just exactly what you're
1: doing and so when you when you saw those frustrations and you identified some of those problems what was your next step to, to building what is now key doctor well my my very first step
2: was actually teaching myself some um, programming i went to, i was on um, a, a month and a half um traveling between um, two different training posts I was on and I, I bought a book with three different programming languages in it and I tried my best to digest that and started to build something really really um, early stage and, and rudimentary and quickly obviously got out, out of my depth as a programmer not not I can call myself a programmer um, but it gave me an inclination of firstly the scale of the job and and secondly something to show people um as a as a very early stage, and that that allowed me to kind of it had something to hang my hat on as part- in addition to the idea and the vision that I was talking about so i'd say it's it's partly goes back to what we said before then it's an idea is one thing but actually beginning to execute i get I get personally impatient if I can't execute something if it's just talking around ideas all day long, it just really
1: frustrates me. Yeah, I mean I, I think my background was um well you know is is very similar in that I just sort of taught myself how to code. Um and I think the, the, the other thing that it does do is it allows you to iterate very, very quickly. So I don't know about you, but certainly with my early companies, um even just the idea as I was coding, you you learn some limitations of of what you can do personally and then you try and work around that and it and actually it helps to hone what your idea is and how you can deliver it. And also within yeah. those tight budgets, it really, really focuses you down on on what can be delivered and what the users want. Absolutely,
2: yeah, which is super important. The whole concept of an MVP came from that, didn't it? Quick iteration, failing fast in in small
1: quantities. And then when you got, I suppose, to the the limitations of your your coding skills uh, from from those early days, what what was your next step, and um, and how did you build up, key doctor? Yeah, so I was um, I was it I I was it was getting
2: the story out there and showing that really early stage um product if you can call it that to um interested individuals so I ended up um it was I had I think a a database of about a thousand high net worth individuals that I just spent a lot of time trying to to scrape and gather together from wherever I could um started to contact them and did the the hard work and going out and pitching to people and um I knew that I needed when I reached the limit of my programming expertise and without going further down that and getting more training to do it um i needed to I needed funding to bring someone in um and so the next step was okay what what types of people do I need to join the team um and I need to make sure that they they believe in what we're doing as well um and then what amount of money would we need to to bring those people on um actually, the first couple of angel investors ended up being very financially orientated people, um, ex-chief finance officers um, who were, A, could see that I put the groundwork into projections and what what things would mean financially for us and what we would need and why we would need it, Um, but B, for future support coming into this as a clinician, I wanted to get commercial support behind what we're doing to make sure it was sustainable.
3: That's really interesting to say to kind of good learnings that you, you had a whole database of angels of vcs of investors um before you went out to start speaking to them can you mm. talk more about kind of the success rate of those meetings how many meetings you had oh yeah that's a good
2: question it was a while ago i'm trying to think back so um it's pretty low pretty low success rate i can't remember sort of i can't give you a percentage but it, it, the first investment round was two and two angel investors and i had it was nearly a thousand in the database, um definitely several hundred that I um had a continual conversation with, not just a single cold um email or call. So very, very low is the it's the overall message. Um I think it's just I, I was treating it as a numbers game and to some extent a learning process. I needed to figure out what the thing what the, the incentives were, what the hot buttons and, and what phrases were needed. How actually, which parts of the story was I unsure of, and did I need to go back and develop myself a bit more? Um, that was kind of the process for me.
3: And you have done that through kind of iterating every time you had a meeting, kind of analysing how it went, what went well, what didn't.
2: Yeah, to to the extent that you can, because you you know what you what you know, and you you actually the biggest thing it does is identify the areas that you hadn't either hadn't thought of at all, uh, occasionally, or things that you hadn't thought through enough. Or you didn't have a sufficiently robust and researched answer behind.
1: That was the, the learning process for me. And with with that um, learning process, what would you? What sort of books and things were you, were you looking at at that stage? Or do you think it's it's better essentially just trying to, to have a go and then make some notes in a diary or something, reflect on them? What was most useful for you? Do you think?
2: Yeah, I think um, there's there's an element of. Um, well, there there are, as you guys will know, some very useful startup books out there. Once you've read, in my experience, once you've read three or four of them, you start to get a lot of repetition. And I felt like that was the point where I've got to this circle where I've started theorizing too much and I need to just get out and do it. And that's what the books tell you, is you need to get out of the room and do it. Um, But there was an extent to which, you know, um, going over and over the theory of, um customer centricity and, and minimum viable product and all of these things and the lean methodologies. I I started got to the point where I'd filled in and iterated a, a kind of a lean plan so much that I, I just needed to do it. And that's why I kind of went the other way and said, well, database, treat it like a numbers game, go out and speak to people um and iterate as you go. So it's a combination really, starting with a, a, a bit of a bit of knowledge,
1: as much as you need to just kick that process off yeah i completely agree i mean i think it's all it's important that founders should be reading listening to podcasts at all stages i mean we routinely sort of leave fridays relatively clear friday afternoon for, for business development and and essential education ourselves um, and whether that's mm-hmm. listening to podcasts um reading books uh, it's really, really important that, that founders treat, you know, really make time for that as part of their ongoing learning process and education. Uh, but, yeah. but I, you know, equally completely agree that those very early stage books, I think they're quite good for shifting people's mindsets and more so mm-hmm. basically making people believe that they can do it because people before them have done it. Um, if, especially if you're reading things like biographies, um, yeah. you know, like Sam Sam Walton, who founded Walmart uh, and <clears throat> made in America a really, really great book. Um, mm-hmm but then actually getting out there and, and practically seeing what is necessary because whether it's coding or particularly things like fundraising, there are some real idiosyncratic subtleties to, to how you yeah. need to position your pitch, to iterating your deck, and to understanding that it is quite an imprecise science. Um, mm. So I, I think you know that's all absolutely spot on. Um, and then what at that stage, what was the, because obviously we, we tell people get your vision and your your messaging is as clear and coherent as possible so uh, an investor or a customer who might not really understand the technology or really understand the space gets it immediately what what was your messaging then and how has it evolved to what Q doctor is now
2: yeah well I think I think I was fortunate in that um, in healthcare and particularly in the NHS with you know you're already dealing with a hugely um, recognizable brand and set of ethics with the NHS so everybody knows it's a very widespread um, perception about you know universal access and that was aligned with my mission with the company already so people got that pretty pretty quickly anyone who knew the NHS did understand what I was trying to do um, which was which was get technology out there to enable better um, access and better quality healthcare for people for free without without charging so that was i I was sort of an advantage there where where the vision was already aligned with a lot of narrative that's already fairly common um I think the other part and it just made me think of it as you were as you were talking about the um the kind of mindset shift for for me as well the as well as all the startup literature there was um sort of educating myself in big business to some extent as a medic coming through, you don't get exposure to that, so I was also reading you know like. Um, five-day MBA type books as well. Given the fact that lots of high net worths will come from um, large corporate environments, big business environments I wanted to understand how they would think um, if they weren't fully in the startup world already and they were coming in, not just maybe not understanding the tech or the healthcare but also not understanding small businesses and startup mentalities. So I just wanted to come from that perspective where I could talk about, you know, the financial projections in five years for example and and all the terminology that comes with that without feeling out of my depth about it
1: yeah and again it's 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 a very similar process isn't it because with financials uh, we had obviously robert vanderzarm on um, a few podcasts ago talking about finances for early stage companies and mm. you've really got to have a go i mean you can download a sort of a startup template financial model from the internet and work your way through that but then you you can get to a, or at least certainly I got to a, a good position where I was able to create some models and things myself, which then looked much more bespoke. Um, w- which is really, really important for both when you get to pitch, but then also your long-term cash flow projections and making sure that yeah, you know, at the core of your business, it is a business and it's sustainable.
2: That's right, and I think a lot of, but coming from this, the strengths, obviously I had coming was was coming as a clinician, spending years in the space and knowing it intimately. But the, the weakness that I was worried investors might be worried about is, does this guy know what he's doing with the business? Is it, does he have a commercial, um, any commercial expertise at all? And that's, that's how you, you have to just um, be ahead of that and, and be confident. You can understand um, potential consequences and, and the planning that's needed.
3: Another interesting point you, you kind of brought up is getting in the mindset of the investor as well. Mm. Actually pitching to what they want to see.
2: Yeah, and it's interesting because to some extent you you need to well you need to retain your your principle and your not be too flexible. I think if I'd gone in and and with with the idea that I would um, bend to whatever direction any different types of investor wanted, then then you end up with an inconsistent story and inconsistent strategy. If you know if you've got a, a VC meeting and then an angel meeting, and the VC needs a a massive return and, a, and an IPO and that the angel is would be happy with them um, an acquisition in three years time that's smaller you know that and then you then you and then you would end up with two slide decks two stories and it becomes harder to truly embody it so I was conscious I didn't want to vary too much just be just be aware of the thoughts and the what essentially what concerns might they have and how can I properly address them and, and research them.
1: So we had um uh Babylon on uh the podcast last week so you might who's a clinical director mm. there yeah. you're operating in the same sector as them for for listeners who might not know necessarily um q doctor as a brand what are the big differentiating unique factors around what you guys are doing yeah well, i think um well the first
2: thing to say i've got a lot of respect for what they're doing they, they've obviously been extremely successful which you guys were talking about the, the last time the scale and the speed that that's happened um in fact, the, the awareness raising that's been done has been great for the industry as well. Sort of all GPs in the country all know about it. Techno- the technology is moving on and whatever disruption came with that, there has been a big awareness jump, which has been great. Um, our, I guess the difference is the, the kind of fundamental difference is our approach has been slightly different with um, the knowledge that um, health as a sector it can't be disrupted too heavily. Um, you can the traditional kind of um move at breakneck speed and, and disrupt and break things as you go in silicon valley doesn't translate um fully to a to a healthcare setup that's that's been trundling long and and innovating at a slow pace um partly because healthcare is what it is and it's and it's literally life or death but partly because it's such an entrenched system of um sort of medical hierarchy and and process i guess so one of the things that um i think is has been a big differentiator as still is for us is that we've started from the existing infrastructure and we've gone out to the practices around the country um and said what would you for even from the very beginning of designing it um what would you design to support your existing process in your practice um that could allow this um in our case video consulting um with the tools that we bring around that to make that happen because we're recognizing that change you can, you can do that with a patient-led kind of patients voting with their feet and and moving and disrupting the finances but you can also do it in a way that we we hope that can kind of support the um the clinicians and the reception teams on the ground fielding the demand from patients to see a doctor um i think the the other thing is that um where you've got practices that have um Changes in setup, so they're moving into hub environments um, and they're feeding more into um, things like one 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 and urgent care centers um, We also started with that in mind and we've done some work recently actually in um in one 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 we we were conscious that rather than trying to artificially bolt them together with with a system that was built in one and not the other um we've kind of started more centrally and gone through, so our platform's gone through a, a safety process, um, centrally in the country, that, that means that it's got certification from clinicians before it's gone anywhere. It's a really tricky balance to strike, but I think that the safety sort of um, mindset has has won us business in the NHS because it's the way that doctors think. And so it's sort of, in a nutshell, it's being of the system and, and working with it as much as we can that, um, That has allowed us success so far. I
0: think. So, Chris, we we hear all the time about the NHS being a really difficult place to innovate in, and I think you've alluded to some of the answers to this question, which are that um, it's that you can't break things, you you can't go too quick and and disrupt things too heavily. Do you think your background as a clinician has really helped you with that and getting your early conversations?
2: I think it has to to an extent, yeah. I, th- I think um, what what we've been able to do fairly recently is, as we've scaled, um, early stages of scaling, is, is we've been able to replicate what I've done in the last year and a half um, to, in some cases, non-clinicians. Um, but it's for me, it's been about learning what parts of what I was doing were working and, and were helping. So I guess part of that is is the story around um, where it's come from and then the, and the intentions behind it um i think there's 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 an also apart from just the the explanation of where we are and the motivation there's also kind of the the actual knowledge of how the system works and that probably comes across in early meetings where um if, if we're talking about the exclusions that people who just can't be seen in, on video as a a true pure salesperson might be trying to shoehorn in types of patients to reassure that the prospective customer and i just don't do that because it's not how I
0: think and it's not how the clinician I'm talking to thinks yeah and I think you you mentioned it before about you coming at it with the ethics of it in mind that I'm sure that when you're having those conversations about those patients then and you know what Q doctor might be good for and what it might be not so good for it really gives you that credibility in the room to make those sales
2: yeah exactly exactly and it and it's just it's the starting point of safety just um it, it makes it puts people at ease because you've put that time in. It's the same going back to those investor discussions. you've figured out we try and work out what are what would the concerns be and and how can we address them fully not just in in talk, but actually in what, what do we put into our platform to to reassure and to prevent bad things from happening.
0: And there are things going on at the moment, aren't there? You know, in, in the upper eons of the NHS with policy and things that are making it easier for technology to come in. I think it was recently that um, you know it's it's recommended or even mandated that GPs have to deliver an out-of-hours service. How much is kind of the the, the NHS policy affecting you as a business?
2: Um, it's yeah. So the the out-of-hours component um, that's been. Um, that's been really good for us we we deliver um extended access um delivery of of workforce and a platform for that and and that's kind of that has shifted on um what probably would have just trundled along if there wasn't a compulsory policy in place um and which is which is great for patients because it means that actually they can book in the evenings and the weekends Um, and that ties back to to our mission of getting the the access right and using technology to enable that enables in our case it enables the existing gps in the practice to um suddenly to do stuff remotely and, and then be a lot happier in their work and deliver more so it's it's a win-win in that sense and that has
0: been pushed on by policy um and it ultimately helps patients exactly. right? because then patients can then book those out of hours appointments the gps are unable to do so and, and as you say it's a bit of a win-win so tell us more about the 111 the, um, things you've got going on
2: yeah sure so that's um it's essentially a, a modification of our platform that allows video to be used in, in a one one setting where you call in if you're deemed appropriate for a clinician to call you back, that happens around the country over telephone. Um what we've done is taken our platform through a safety process to um to enable it to be used as video instead of telephone. Um and then some of the metrics we're gathering and some of the data that's already coming back is that um the clinician is better able to close Um, consultations i.e. give um, sound advice and there's a there's a a slightly increased scope because they can see things um specifically see things on the skin they can see how the patient is and they feel more comfortable with their um with their reassurance and then there's a there's something from the patient side there's great feedback on video um and and this is outside of context because normally the, the feedback for video being good in a practice is a lot of it's related to the fact they don't have to come in. In a one-one-one sense, there's no trip involved that we're replacing, so it takes that out. So it's been nice for us to kind of delineate. Actually, this is patient good patient feedback because they feel there's a better rapport, and that's what they tend tend to report. Is they could see someone and that felt there was a better relationship, and they felt more reassured. And for the metrics-wise, they're less likely to call up again or less likely to go to A&E or somewhere else. Um, so it's a really, I, I'm really excited by that side of it because it's, um, it's an expansion into a different channel that um, looks after patients in a, in a new way, an exciting way, and that's, in a way that's not being done yet anywhere
0: else. So Chris, how much uptake have you seen and how do you make sure that these GP practices are actually happy with the safety associated with what you're doing? Um,
2: so we've seen um, in the last couple of months, um, tens of practices joining and partnering with us. We've got, we're now in over 60 practices um, live as a service, supporting them. Um, and a really important part of that, and, and particularly as the numbers go up, has been about making sure that we're supporting governance processes for practices. Um, obviously, a primary concern for them is um, the Care Quality Commission coming in and, and looking at what they do and how they do it. Um, we couple of weeks ago had publication of um our, our CQC report we we were we became CQC registered um to make sure that we had all of that governance um already and and thought about and properly inspected um, we've been deemed safe effective caring responsive and well led by the CQC, which is quite rare in in the telemedicine sector in the country um, so taking that and supporting with that supporting governance to practices has been a key part of rolling out in a way that they're happy with in delivering it safely effectively to uh, to their patient population.
0: We talk so often about startups having to just drill it down into real basics about solving problems for patients and it I, th- I think it's very reassuring as to how you're going about expanding QDoctor into these different sectors. Um there's a clear focus in you just choosing the areas where people do have those problems um and you're literally going into So you're adding to the services that already exist rather than as you say going going too quickly and breaking things
2: yeah and i think I think that has been um it's a especially as we've recruited internally that's often um the mission is very easy to explain, but that nuance that you described is is a bit harder, and I spend more of my time now um communicating that internally because. You, the immediate assumption for everyone is, um, it's great. It's great for the the patient journey, which is absolutely true. But the key problem points um, that we're addressing in a new channel have to be also orientated around who's actually buying the service um, and what their problems are. And and that's, you know, in in those cases, it's how many consultations do they close? How many home visits do, can they mm-hmm. replace safely? And those are things that people only think about if they're in that organization um, because it's so much easier to think about the the more widely distributed direct-to-patient apps where you go in and it's
0: patient-facing. On your previous point about you know your role changing within the company i was actually speaking to someone yesterday who's grown their team to 25 now and he said for the first time he sort of sat at his desk and he he thought he didn't have anything to do but then he all of a sudden realized he was emancipated to then actually deliver that culture yeah. and and tr- and spend most of his time actually getting people on 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 board with how he wants to um grow the company and how he wants to you know impart his own vision and personality on the company mm-hmm. how has your role changed over time, and, and and talk us through that a little bit. Expanded, yeah,
2: um, so it's I'm I'm still very much on the ground as much as I can be, um, in terms of going out and speaking to, um, the prospective customers. But what is what is certainly creeping in more and more is, um, I've learned to delegate more and more different types of tasks to different people who are now in the team. Um, I guess it's a lot of it has been pretty well maybe six months ago was about process planning. How do we, how do we scale these parts of the business so that in six months, Chris doesn't have to be at the center of it. Um, that's Mm. kind of where we were six months ago and it, and we're now seeing the, um, I'm seeing particularly the benefits of that because it's, it's been scaled, I guess, even now compared to a few years ago, that the fact that any problem as a, as a scaling company we have, there tends to be a startup orientated product for it. Um, not not always. They're mm. not always cheap. So you have to be a bit careful about what's the, the, the optimal um, way of, of saving money versus resource on that. But there there are so many tools, so many you know, project management tools, customer relationship managers, content management systems, communication tools, Slack, you know, all of these things that feed into creating um, a scalable company that, that uses its mm. own tech, but uses all of that tech as well.
0: I know the passion that you've got for the company and and your vision and helping GPs and helping patients. So I imagine in some ways it must be quite hard pulling back from the ground floor.
2: It is, it's really hard. Delegating is tough when it's your baby. <laughs> um, yeah, it's, but at the same time it's it's satisfying because you, I feel reassured that the team are now doing the same stuff and it's more of them. Um, it is, it is satisfying at the same time. It, and it also, it also frees up um, your time for, as you said just now, that partly the strategy, but partly the making sure the culture's right. Um, I, I know I listened to the last week's podcast about culture, and it is it is something easy to dismiss, and and something that actually can come back and bite you. I think if it's not right, um, it's going to be important more and more as you as the things speed up and people come on board quicker. Um, you
1: have to get that right and make sure everyone's pulling in the same direction. And how did you go about actually identifying your first hire, as in how did you figure out which position you were going to hire into and then how did you actually find someone?
2: Um, So way back, um, it was the
1: the first hire was somebody who could help
2: me, it was a lead engineer who could help me build, Uh, in fact it was two at once, it was a lead engineer who could take on my code base and massively improve it um and then also a, a CTO who would make sure we're making the right early decisions about technology types um that was my my thinking at that point and I'm still glad I did that did it that way around was that if i just hire a coder um and no disrespect to them but it but you have to i think there are different skill sets involved in a choosing st- strategically the right technology and b having um kind of on the ground actually doing the code writing so i did i did both at once and how i how i found them was um both through there, there's a, a site called work in startups um i don't know if it's still as popular as it was two or three years ago but you put a post up on on there for free and then you get people sending you their cvs um, and i in each case just interviewed lots of people um went with quite a gut feeling as to personality type what they'd be like to work with as well
1: as as much as I could on actual expertise Um, and that's that's kind of how that happened. And Chris just going going back to telehealth telemedicine as a uh, an industry in itself a couple of things on that so obviously it's it is making a significant impact within healthcare but there's still quite a lot of opposition and antibodies I suppose within the system against it Could you just sort of summarise, I guess, to the listeners what those concerns are around it and and how you're addressing it through QDoctor?
2: Sure, yeah. So I I think um, one of the big concerns is what type of patient goes in to that type of consultation because you've got the limitations of not being able to physically see somebody um, and lots of doctors, or vast majority of doctors, are very kind of um, tied to that process of examination and they need to be. because you know medically legally actually clinically you need that you need that in um a fair proportion of cases um what we're doing to address that well if you think back to when telephone came in to general practice the same antibodies arose people were worried about that there were gps were saying um we haven't been trained to consult over telephone how are we going to do that And now every practice does it um and it was almost in it, it as a little bit of a different environment in that it wasn't a, a tech platform in a tech environment with startups doing it but it was a similar jump in means of consulting um the way it's been kind of successful i think partly is because it's been controlled by the actual stakeholders involved and, and that's what how we started at q doctor tip we, when we got those early practices together and the gps together we built that built them a a means of controlling who gets um, video consultations right at the beginning. Um, so it gives them the ability to do the normal triage, as you like, um, that they would do. And it makes them feel more comfortable that we're not just deciding externally who goes in and who doesn't. Um, we're also working closely with, we're now involved with um, practice groups all over the country, um, several of the biggest groups of GP practices. And they're, all super keen to get this um, decision-making right, not just within reception teams, but building a, um, a some form of triage that works effectively, because I don't think it's being done um, particularly well, and with the right stakeholder input at the moment. Um, so for us, it's just been as a principle, always about getting the GPs and the people who receive the calls to be comfortable with, and, and confident in the right type of person, um, so if you've got if you're coming in with um pain in your abdomen, then you're going to need an abdominal examination, therefore video isn't going to be appropriate. Um, but being confident that someone with a mental health condition will be very good for it, someone with a skin rash will be very good for it, um, someone with lots of other conditions um, is, is very appropriate and can have a really good consultation on video. Just being clear and honest about that from the beginning has has enabled us to get um, GPs
1: on board with it. I think it just goes back to understanding your customers, really, doesn't it? I mean, I think for mm. for any uh, health tech founder or certainly anyone who's bringing in emerging technology or or very, very sci-fi tech, like uh, we sort of uh, invest in and, and help companies develop. Um, one interesting thing, I was just, um, I think it was Aaron Levy, who's the CEO of uh, Box, uh, put out a good tweet. Um, I think it was just last month where he was sort of talking about the the different stages of bringing any kind of new technology to market.
2: I guess this is the NHS specific to some extent is the um rather than kind of being um the the phrase where you talk about don't taking no for an answer it's um it's not been about that at all for me it's been about not taking the the phrase oh that sounds great for an answer because in in the NHS people say that sounds great i know that's not the the, the people who are honest about um that sounds really scary they come along as well occasionally but far more often i, I find that is that people even if they have a worry about it um they don't want to be nasty or they don't want to be impolite so maybe it's a British thing um but they say that sounds great and the reality is they they're still worried and they don't want to tell you so that point is for selling into the NHS and my experience has been about if they say that sounds great then testing it in some way in a, in a polite way sort of saying well what are the next steps and Do you have any concerns around this or this? Because otherwise you're not not qualifying people hard enough. You're not actually testing. Do they really think it's great? And in which case, why haven't they signed a contract already? And the NHS doesn't have enough people who say no. It has a lot of people who say, uh, it sounds good. Let me take it to somebody else.
0: Quick comment from me on that. I absolutely agree my previous accelerator obviously i helped you know 61 startups access the nhs over the course of it and it is so true that people will often take a meeting it might take a while but people will often take a meeting and they will give quite superficial feedback and never really get mm. to the truth of it and i think that persistence and that Desire to get really true, honest feedback is absolutely key because some founders will often walk away from those meetings and then they'll start quoting, "Oh, the NHS loves it. Yeah. This, this big NHS organisation yeah. loves it, or ah, oh, this really big name in the NHS said it's great and and really likes it," whereas. I find the best founders that actually go and get things done have then just gone back and and absolutely figured out what the problem was. And they've been honest with themselves about Mm. that feedback and said, just as you've done, well, they said it's great, but clearly they don't actually think that. I've now drilled down into it and I've gone back with a better proposition. So I I think that, you know, for for the listeners out there that are trying to get their technology into the NHS, that is a very, very good blueprint. Why do you think that
3: is though, James? Why do you think they just say that's nice and not actually give
0: critical feedback? I, th- I think a lot of it is, as as Chris has mentioned, I think there is that kind of just wanting to be polite, as people trying to make these genuine changes, but I think a lot of it is appetite as well, I think saying that's great, that they can get you out of the room and they can go on with their very busy jobs that, that you know, are extremely demanding, it's... <laughs> Nobody often gets sacked for keeping things the way they are. It's, it's, often, it's often really difficult also to, to become less efficient with new technology to then hopefully become more efficient in future. So you're always fighting against that current of, well, as it is now, everything's in balance. It's really difficult to disrupt that. Um, I, I take your point. It might be cheaper in the future. It might be better in the future. Everything might be quicker in the future if we bring this on. Yeah, I mean, I, I think the other thing to think about
1: is it's, it is all about the the humans that you're speaking to. It's a very uh, you know human uh, process of of you going in and trying to convince someone that that what you're bringing, which is very new and exciting, is actually going to solve a problem for them and not create more problems. And as James said, you know, the, your resting state is is one of you know no no movement. You're in equilibrium. So actually having to do something, make some effort to introduce something into a new system is is going to cause some umbrage to an extent. That's why we sort of say you, you're going to need to be prepared for winning people over, for finding these clinical champions within organisations before going to any of the key stakeholders. And even when you do go to stakeholders, and, and to, to a degree, you know, this is the same for sales as, as for investors, you may well come out of those meetings and people say, yeah, it's cool. And the advice that we give to people is watch film, she's just not that into you. Because that's, that's, probably, that's probably what they yeah. mean. They, they kind of like it. They think it's cool. But at the end of the day, they're just not that into you for whatever reason that is.
2: To say, VCs are exactly the same as those NHS prospects that we talked about. They don't say no. In fact, I spoke to one the other day who was very honest and said, we don't say no. Said, we can't. We can't afford to. We have to keep everything open and let the cream rise, is what she said, because you have to do that as a VC. And, and that's the same thing. I guess I guess from a, from a personal perspective as well, I think the reason I've done quite well at um that process or or battling that process is I assume everything is going to fall through unless it doesn't um maybe that's from James might be able to agree actually it might be from anesthetics where you kind of have plan A, B, C, and D. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I just assume they're all going to fall through unless something proves to me the opposite.
3: It's about finding the right person to talk to as well, the one that can make that decision as well. Because often it's so fragmented in the NHS, you'll be able to get to someone that actually isn't the decision maker, um, and it's it's yeah. wading through that and getting to the right person. Yeah,
1: I think <laughs> it's the, it's the same for all organisations. I mean, you 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 need to locate the the correct person within that organisation, and that's one of the big things for fa- that founders need to do from quite an early stage is understanding who is going to be the key person that will help them as a company introduce it to directly solve a problem for the organization as a whole and often it can it's not necessarily the person you think it might be it might not be that actually the person who is in charge of a department or a ward or or is even sort of the the chief executive of a hospital at the opposite end is going to be the person that helps you really drive it through it may well be somebody in the it department it may be somebody in the hospital library or or a, uh, an offshoot of something that, that you thought might hold a budget. So it's really important to go and speak to everybody within an organisation and try and find these key stakeholders. And, and often what happens is once you've nailed that, you can rinse and repeat that method to an extent within other organisations. Um, and you can start doing things like looking through LinkedIn for specific job descriptions about those type of people that you want to connect with. So, I think you're absolutely right. It's about finding the correct people. It's about asking the right questions. And then it's about having an ask and, and really setting a hard deadline and just saying, yeah, look, this is this is what we're doing. This is what our price point is. This is all of our research and statistics. We'd love to get you on board with this, but we can't leave it open-ended. We we do have to close you by by this date. And that's the same sort of sales or investors, really. Going back to, to telehealth again, Chris, obviously with, you know, I, I guess you, you could class what we just talked about is dealing with rejections and, and being relentless as a founder the, the the other thing in dealing with that i suppose is when you're in a sector like telehealth where there's lots of players any sector to be honest but for that matter how do you deal with sort of competition and, and how do you look at it from a founder's point of view
2: yeah it's a really good question because it's clearly very relevant to to me and qdoctor and what we've done um and it, and it gets raised by everybody you speak to um when they've got profile um, competitors I think for me it's been about not being too concerned about it um, being aware of it is, is obviously really important you, you know every particularly investor conversations you have to be aware of a lot of detail of competitor activity from from a strategy point of view and from a constantly needing to differentiate point of view but being aware is not the same as as worrying about it and, and being too focused on it Um. I think that the the danger is if you don't if you if you over concentrate on the the size of a competitor or the scale or the direction, um, you lose the ability just by defocusing. You lose the ability to be really concentrated on um your mission and and as we talked about before, being able to communicate that to your team. Um, and I think um, Umang said the same thing on your podcast last week that you have to. Um, be aware of the the higher level mission as well that if other people do it well then that's also good because of the sector we're in um, delivering free healthcare to people um, and and supporting NHS infrastructure if that's being done across the board then great let's try and feed off each other's learnings and and improve it together and keep and and concentrating on your own mission to do that is the most effective way of actually executing it not worrying about others
1: and then to to close out the podcast, obviously we hand back over to you and uh, give you the opportunity just to sort of summarise exactly what Q Doctor does, and then finish off with a uh, an ask of of anybody, uh, especially I think from um, the listener base. There are a, a lot of GPs who are listening. Great, thank you. Um, yeah,
2: so it's Q Doctor. What we do is um, we support existing infrastructure in, probably predominantly in primary care um, in the NHS to. And deliver video consultations for their patients for free, for free for the patient, um, in a way that can help the practice or the organisation that supports the practice um, to deliver that in a cost-efficient way. Um, and part of that is a workforce solution, which is a really apt um, solution for the problems at the moment. Um, so I guess, yeah, the the, the ask is that if, if you are a GP or involved in the running of a practice or practice manager. Um, and you're interested in video, you've heard about it, um, but have concerns either clinically or more fundamentally around how it fits into finance flows for a practice, how is it going to not shake the boat too much, um, then please do get in touch with us because that's a problem that we've been wrestling with and and coming up with a solution for, um, with NHS England fully supporting me doing that. Um, So I'd love to talk you through it.